Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Amy Bender. Amy, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners again? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me back. I know I was on probably a little while ago, but uh, my name is Dr. Amy Bender. I am um, a, a adjunct assistant professor at the University of Calgary in kinesiology and also a uh, principal sleep strategist at sleepintowin.com, which is where I do uh, some of my consulting work with professional teams, um, all different kinds of athletes, uh, recreational, college, etc. Very good. So sleep into win, is that like going against the grain where most people get up too early and they don't sleep enough? Is that the thinking there? Yes, uh, it's not it's not the perfect name because, you know, you don't want to sleep in too much. But yes, it kind of goes against the 5 a.m. club where people are getting up so early to just try and be more productive. But we know in the end that actually sleep helps lead to better productivity. So uh, sleep in to win, um, you know, getting more sleep can lead to just a better, uh, better performance, better mood, et cetera. So that's kind of where the name came from. Very good. That's a very relevant topic. So if someone is part of the 5am club, you know, let's just say they're like thinking about, oh, if I get up earlier, I'll be, maybe, they, maybe they're not doing that or they're thinking about, uh, cur- they currently do it. And they're like, oh yeah, I, c- I can get up at five, no problem. What would be the issue with that? Like, let's say over the course of a month or maybe even years. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that sleep deprivation, there's a lot of associations with poor health outcomes. Um, looking at even just acute sleep deprivation, I started the sleep field by working in a sleep deprivation lab and we would sleep deprived uh, participants up to 62 hours, so two full nights without sleep. And we would see those deficits occurring. Uh, we'd see greater lapses of attention, um, dis- poor decision-making, greater risk-taking. Um, and obviously that was acute uh, sleep deprivation. But what we see if we look at data across time over years and years we start to see negative health outcomes with uh, poor or not a, not getting enough sleep, which is really common in the U.S. with about 35% not getting that minimum seven hours of sleep that, that each of us needs. So what would be some of the signs if someone is sleep deprived? Like how would they know kind of acutely and then kind of chronically, oh, I'm Maybe they're kind of thinking, I might be, I'm not sure. What would, the, what would be indicators? Waking up with an alarm every night. Like it, it is challenging to determine that exact number that each of us need when it comes to our own individual need for sleep. Um, so if we start with kind of what that looks like optimally, uh, waking up without an alarm clock is a good sign, not needing a ton of caffeine, not feeling really tired throughout the day. Uh, Those are all good signs that you're getting the right amount of sleep that you need. And if we look at kind of the opposite signs that uh, you aren't getting enough sleep, and 
And to be fair, this is this is challenging when we're sleep deprived, because one of the things we found in our studies, and, and we see this throughout the research, is that you have a hard time judging how you're actually doing. So when we're looking at these people who are sleep deprived up to 62 hours, their performance was tanking, and yet they felt like they were doing fine. And that's kind of a mechanic mechanistic function of our prefrontal cortex, our decision-making areas um, kind of deactivated during sleep deprivation. So we don't have a good sense of uh, judging how we're doing. Um, so that's why it makes it more challenging because there may be a lot of 5 a.m. club people out there who think, oh, I'm doing fine. Like I can get by on five or six hours of sleep. But in reality, if you were to objectively look at your performance, there's probably some lapses of attention. There's probably a slower reaction time. There's probably riskier decision making. So it is challenging. So we all want to kind of aim to hit that minimum of seven hours. There is some variability in there. So maybe someone needs six and a half and they're falling asleep naturally, they're getting up naturally without an alarm. And, you know, those are good indications that maybe this person doesn't need as much, but the majority of us do need at least seven hours. And we're not talking, you know, go to bed at 10, wake up at five. That's seven hours time in bed. That's not seven hours of sleep. So, you want to be in bed for a little bit longer than the amount of sleep that you actually need because it takes you time to fall asleep. You may wake up in the middle of the night, you know, et cetera. So how, how long should people give themselves in, in bed to sleep? If, if the goal is to get, you said seven. So kind of I've, I've seen that it takes roughly 20 minutes to fall asleep. So we'll say seven and a half hours. And then I'm, I'm sure there's kind of like, uh, light sleep periods in there as well. So like, so if someone was trying to get seven hours, would they need to give themselves eight hours in bed? Is that how that would work? Yes. Uh, although we don't want to be in bed too long. So, um, and we can get into circadian rhythms and those kind of things. Um, but we, Typically, a normal, healthy adult, normal sleeper, no sleep disorders will fall asleep in less than 30 minutes. Um, if you're falling asleep too quickly, you're likely sleep deprived. So that's something to consider, too. If it takes you, you know, seven minutes to fall asleep, there could be some sleep deprivation occurring. Um, but if you're taking longer to fall asleep, you know, we don't want to be in bed for more time because we don't want to associate our bed with being awake. So ideally, you know, a lot, maybe 15 to 20 minutes to fall asleep, plus 20 minutes, maybe during the middle of the night. So anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes of extra time in bed in order to hit that minimum mark that you need. Got it. And then you mentioned not having an alarm. So is it better to wake up naturally or is there kind of side effects to waking up with an alarm? Well, waking up with an alarm is kind of an indication that maybe you're not getting enough sleep, um, that it's taking that alarm to wake you up. 
or that the timing of your, there actually, there could be three main factors, uh, sleep duration, which we talked about, uh, sleep quality. So we have to be concerned about the quality of your sleep as well. If you have a dog waking you up, you know, every so often, um, you know, that can be challenging and that can impact the quality of your sleep and your ability to get into deeper states of sleep, for example. But also the timing of sleep is important. And so if, for example, you're a night owl, um, but you're having to wake up at 6 a.m. to get to work on time, you know, that's a sign that ideally we want to try and shift that schedule later. Now, typically that's not possible. We all have to get up for work. So there are some things we can do to help shift our circadian rhythms and help our biology be more aligned with our sleep schedule. And one of the keys for that is actually getting lots of light. So light helps. Light is the biggest effect, uh, effector. I don't even know if that's a word of our circadian rhythm. So light in the morning is going to help set the tone. It's going to help tell our brain it's time to wake up. Let's get rid of that melatonin. This is the day. So light in the morning is important. Um, it helps set our circadian rhythms. It helps strengthen our circadian rhythms. So those people who spend more time outside when it comes to bedtime and they're looking at an electronic device, it's not going to have as much impact on their sleep quality because they've gotten all this light across the day, which is going to help improve sleep quality at night. So uh, those are some things to consider. It's funny, you're making me think of, I'll go to the movies at like 4 p.m. in the day, but because it's so dark, I'll just nod off. Is that related to my circadian rhythm and how my body thinks it's nighttime and I'm going to sleep or is that something else? <laughs> it could it could definitely be related to that because no matter the time of day, and of course there's certain times of day when we're more alert according to our circadian rhythms, typically, you know, mid-morning, 10 a.m. or really, and it depends on your circadian rhythm, um, but 10 a.m. is a really, really alerting time. Um, Post-lunch is actually a very kind of sleep-promoting time. Um, and then once we get into, you know, 7, 8 p.m., actually, there's a peak in alertness. However, it's not just about our circadian rhythms, but it's also about the uh, sleep homeostasis or how much sleep you've gotten and how long you've been awake. So as we are, the longer we're awake, the more adenosine builds up in the brain, which is our sleepiness hormone. Um, and so it's kind of the combination between circadian rhythms, how much sleep you got, uh, how long you've been awake, uh, helps determine when we're sleepy and when we're alert throughout the day. So the 4 p.m. example um, may be uh, maybe you didn't get a lot of sleep the previous day, or it could be just a time in your circadian rhythm where uh, that's kind of your low point during the day. And uh, when we think about that, uh, our environment does make a difference in how well we're sleeping and how 
the quality of that sleep. So we do want a good environment when we're preparing to go to sleep. We want to dim the lights. We want to put those electronic devices away. We want to have, you know, noise canceling earplugs, uh, just no, no, no noise in general. And those things help us uh, prepare us, have kind of give us the best chance for sleep too. So, um, yeah, a lot of different factors, circadian rhythms, sleep homeostasis, how long you've been awake, but then also the environment and the light that's in your environment can help uh, facilitate sleep or yes, wakefulness. So <laughs> yeah, so many different factors and as well your sleep that you've gotten the, the nights beforehand as well. So, so with the uh, sleep into win, what work do you typically specialize in there? Yes, I've been um, doing a lot of uh, work with some professional teams. Uh, I was recently actually at the NBA Draft Combine. So they had a health and performance meeting for a lot of their health practitioners, their high performance directors, strength and conditioning coaches. Uh, So that was really interesting to be a part of that. And we had a panel talking about sleep and what to do in the NBA. So that was really interesting. And I'm doing something similar for the NHL coming up at the, at the end of next month. Um, but yeah, some work with just educating athletes on the importance of sleep, which is important. We want to know why, why should I be getting a good night's sleep? Why should I be prioritizing this? And so really speaking the language of, um, performance, how sleep relates to performance with improving reaction time, improving sprint times, um, improving decision-making, for example, is kind of the first step in education. Um, But then doing work one-on-one with individual players, like how do we optimize sleep in this particular scenario with these problems that they're having uh, so, for example, I hear a lot of um, having troubles falling asleep after a game. So I kind of create techniques and a plan to help address that. Um, and then travel travel schedules is a big theme as well when working with these groups. So they're crossing multiple time zones. They're wondering, you know, they may have back to backs um, and they're wondering, should we stay after the game? Uh, at that location, or should we get to the destination as fast as possible? So doing some interesting work with that and uh, working with um, a fabulous uh, CEO uh, at Arcascope who does a lot of uh, mathematical modeling. And she's done a lot of work with shift work. And when should these shift workers be getting light exposure to help shift their circadian rhythms? to a more optimal time when they're working, what should they do on their days off? And so she's done a lot of modeling in that regard. And what we're curious about now is what does this look like in the NBA and what happens when we plug in a schedule, an 82 game schedule? Uh, What does the model look like if they stay over on this day? Or what does the model look like if they arrive at their destination at four in the morning. So, so definitely some interesting work um, in those areas at the moment. Very good. So 
yeah with with travel like i'd have clients who'd obviously travel and is it almost guaranteed that your sleep's going to be disrupted when you travel or can can people kind of maintain the same sleep rhythm and i don't mean crossing over time zones i just mean kind of like you know or maybe maybe traveling within kind of the us where it's not you know a transatlantic is there ways to uh maintain a consistent sleep schedule even with travel well, if if you look at the research, uh, actually, when we're sleeping at a new location, our brain is more awake when we're at this new location. So it's it's really interesting in that regard. So definitely on that first night when we're in the new location, um, you'll likely not have as good of quality sleep as you normally would. But there's ways that we can try and mitigate uh, mitigate these issues, um, you know, preparing, having a good pre-sleep routine, which you do at home and you also do on the road when you're in this new environment, bringing an eye mask, bringing earplugs, you know, setting up your environment for sleep um, and, you know, just doing relaxing activities before bed, putting those electronics away. I have a, actually have a good um, Instagram video, which I, I do need to update, um, where I talk about sleeping in a new environment and in a hotel. So maybe we can link that to, uh, have people check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Anything to make sleeping when traveling easier would, would be a great help. So just in terms of adults in the U S currently, do you know any of the statistics around, you know, how much adults sleep and, you know, how well do they actually sleep, you know, compared to the recommendation? Yes, uh, it looks like about 35% of Americans are not hitting that minimum of seven hours of sleep per night. So about a third of us out there are are sleep deprived. And much of that population probably has some sleep disorders as well. So about 10% of uh, adults at this point could be diagnosed with insomnia so having um poor or having an inability to fall asleep in a reasonable time potentially waking up during the middle of the night um so there's insomnia going on within within those people as well as sleep apnea so uh is a is another very common sleep disorder where you stop breathing during the middle of the night um and a lot of times People are unaware, especially with sleep apnea in particular, you know, maybe a partner will notice them snoring or stopping breathing during the middle of the night, but the person themselves may not be aware as to how many times this is occurring. And I've seen cases where someone's stopping breathing at 80 times per hour across the entire night. So it's a very serious disorder that we want to get checked out from a sleep professional and get treated um, to help in that instance. So yeah, a lot of us are uh, really struggling. And then, you know, that doesn't even include uh, subclinical areas where, you know, someone may not meet the criteria for the disorder, but still their sleep quality could be impacted. So it's, it's a big problem. And um, there's even some statistics on 
that the U.S. economy loses $411 billion annually due to sleep deprivation. So this really impacts absenteeism. So, you know, the more sleep deprived you are, the more likely you are to be sick, um, call in sick to work, uh, mental health. Um, impacts also presenteeism. So you're, you're at work, but you're not really doing much. You're not very productive. So it is a really big problem. I think that we are where I think it's becoming more well known about the importance of sleep, why we need to prioritize it. So I feel like we are potentially on the right track. Um, at uh, really creating awareness of the importance of sleep. Yeah, if if anything can uh, get people to think about their sleep more and ways to sleep better, we can make a dent in that four hundred eleven billion deficit. So, just on sleep apnea, I've heard. Uh, I think it, from what I've seen, it's more common than people think, and you know, snoring could be connected to it. So, what exactly is happening when someone has sleep apnea, and just like, what are some of the side effects? of of that condition. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And I think around, depending on, I thought it was around 20% of people out there have sleep apnea. And across the entire world, it's something like a billion people are actually untreated according to some of these estimates. So it is a very prevalent condition. It is more likely to occur as you get older. So people in their 50s have a higher likelihood of having sleep apnea. It's more likely to occur in males and it's more likely to occur if you have a higher BMI because of the kind of fatty tissues that could be blocking the airway when you're sleeping and don't have a lot of control over those muscles. Um, so those are kind of those people who are at risk. However, I've seen, I've seen women, I've seen, you know, younger women, I've seen, um, people with a lower BMI have sleep apnea. So it can occur. It can occur in really anyone. And there are, again, same with, uh, sleep deprivation. There are a lot of associations with negative health outcomes. So, higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of cardiovascular disease, of stroke, of Alzheimer's. So it's really important that we get that treated. And the gold standard for treatment right now is uh, continuous positive airway pressure, so CPAP. So that's kind of that machine you wear during the night that opens the airway. It just takes kind of room air and it helps open the airway with uh air pressure. Um, a lot of people aren't a fan of that. Um, and so I like to tell people there's alternative therapies out there. So there is oral appliance therapy that can like, um, make you make your airway more open during the night. So you wear a mouth guard that helps keep your airway more open. Um, there's a therapy where they can actually do surgery to help um, increase the airway. Um, and also there's this new therapy called, uh, excite OSA where they do muscle electrical stimulation of the tongue, which helps strengthen and opens the airway. So there's a lot of alternatives out there and there's probably a lot of people out there that tried, 
uh, CPAP and have not tolerated it very well. But just to say that it's important to get this condition treated and that there are alternative therapies besides CPAP. Yeah, I've heard about the, the CPAP and the majority of people I've heard it discuss about their experiences that they didn't like it. So it's really good to know there's other options out there. Mm-hmm. So you, you had a really interesting post on Instagram on, on your page about time spent outside and its effect on uh, sleep quality. Could you just tell us a little bit about that post and, and you know, what did you find in the, in the, the research? Yes. So we had a study where we had about 20 people. So um, kind of a pilot study, I guess you could say a smaller type of study where we had 20 people wear EEG across 20 nights. And we were looking at their lifestyle factors on each of these days and what their sleep quality looked like at night. And then also looked at performance with a reaction time test. And what we found was that uh, those who spent more time outside actually had better sleep quality at night and then subsequently in the morning had better performance. So they had less lapses of attention. They had, I believe we found um, faster reaction time as well. And we found that about um, two hours plus. Now, we didn't. We basically asked someone, did you go outside today? And then we asked them, for how long did you go outside? And then we had to kind of put those into categories. And what we found was that um, two hours and up showed really great benefits when it came to performance the next day versus someone who only got 30 minutes and up to 60 minutes. So. Uh, it's looking like, you know, the more time you can spend outside. Now, at least in this study, the way we analyze it, it was two hours and up. Uh, the better sleep quality you would have at night and um, the less uh, lapses of attention and better performance the next day. Interesting. So, you know, how did you define lapses in attention or, you know, what kind of testing was done? It was uh, an app that we used. Uh, so it was called uh, Vigilance Buddy. And uh, it was an app that basically it was a two minute test and a stimulus would come on the screen and you had to just press your screen as fast as possible. And the way that we define lapses, because it was such a short test, we define lapses as less than three or sorry, greater than 355 milliseconds. So normally you define it as uh, 500 milliseconds or greater, which is a half a second. So, you know, basically anytime um, someone took around a half a second to respond, we considered that a lapse of attention. And we were tracking that throughout this two-minute test and then looking to see how those lapses of attention, like how was their sleep quality uh, the previous night and how much time were they spending outside on the previous day. Got it. So then just looking at the graph itself, so is it fair to say that like 60 minutes is the sweet spot for time outside or... Is 120 minutes better? Is more better? What's what's your opinion? 
If you if you look at the data, so we did not find a significant difference between uh, 61 to 120. So that was one of the categories and then 121 and up. So we did not find a significant difference in lapses um, with those two categories. So you could, and of course, this is kind of extrapolating and um, maybe making a conclusion that may not be replicated in the future, but it looks like if you're getting at least, uh, and this was 61 minutes technically, and and up, it did provide uh, those kind of performance benefits uh, if you look at this graph pretty closely. So again, um, you know, the timing of this uh, time outside um, we didn't get super detailed as to when this timing of time outside was occurring, but we did ask, was it occurring primarily in the morning, afternoon, or evening? We didn't really find much of the uh, result there, but again, it wasn't very detailed as to what that looked like, and they could have been, let's say, doing... 30 minutes in the morning and 31 minutes in the afternoon. And then they would put that their time outside was mostly in the afternoon. So there's a lot of ways I think we could optimize this research going forward. So then that makes me wonder about, you know, the activities outside and like what were people doing outside? So for example, like if someone was uh, walking or doing like running or you know, just having their lunch outside, did that affect the sleep differently than, you know, other activities? It's a good, it's a really good question. Um, we did track exercise on its own to see how exercise influenced sleep quality. We didn't, we didn't find too much there, um, but it could have been that, like, exercise on its own on its own. And this was a small study, so we can't, you know, it's hard to look at the interaction between exercise and time outside and uh, when timing of, of that light exposure as well. So it was a smaller study, so it was hard to look at some of those interactions. Um, but kind of thinking about some of our other results as well, um, we found that the timing of caffeine made a difference. So those who were drinking within four hours of bedtime tended to have poor sleep quality and poor performance the next day. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other results that we found as well. Uh, social Social media use. So we found that those who are more likely to uh, use the internet or use social media in the hour before bedtime had slightly worse sleep quality than those who weren't doing that. And a lot of times, you know, if we're looking at wearables uh, with a ring or a wrist-worn device, that's not actually measuring brainwave activity. And in our study, we were looking at brainwave activity which is much more sensitive to kind of detect some of these changes. So a lot of the pre previous research would indicate that you can use an electronic device before bed, no problem. It's not going to impact your sleep quality. But the way they're looking at sleep quality is through, you know, 
an actograph, wrist worn, movement, etc. So um I think that's the strength of this research, but of course more replication needs to be needed for sure. So, so in your opinion, if somebody works like, you know, a nine to five, they work from home or in an office and you know, they, they don't get a whole lot of time outside. What would you recommend to someone who's like, you know, my sleep, I think it could be better. The quality or duration could be better. And I'm willing to spend more time outside. What would your recommendations be for time spent outside? I would say, can you get outside during a break uh, in the morning? Can you, you know, maybe um, walking the dog? Can you commute to work? I mean, some of these may be unrealistic depending on your situation, but could you bike to work? Could you walk to work? Um, could you walk on your lunch break? Um trying to find ways to kind of naturally fit in the time outside and the movement and exposure to nature activity, um, I think is, is great. And I think it could really make a difference if you're stuck inside a lot. Um, you know, it could really make a difference in your mood, number one, but also your sleep quality. Um, even, even like they found for those, uh, they've compared sleep quality in office workers who have a window versus those who don't have a window and those who do have a window sleep better at night. So even like, can you adjust your working location? I mean, I know that's hard if you're in an office, but if it's like a home office or can you maybe do some work on your laptop close to a window um, those things can all make a difference. So if we can start with some of those activities, um, you, you might see a, a great improvement in your overall sleep quality because our, our brain needs to know when it's day, daytime outside. And, uh, I, I'm actually, my office is kind of in the basement. And so I actually have low, light levels you know i think if i look at the lux or the the quantitative way of measuring the brightness you know i'm at about oh let me just check right now um i'm probably at about a hundred lux or so um here i'm gonna look right now okay i'm at about 200 right now um so even adding artificial light to your environment during the day could be beneficial. Um, we're not designed to be in a cave during the day. So trying to get any kinds of light exposure, and that may even be artificial light exposure, uh, can really help improve our sleep quality. Yeah, I definitely feel like in, in my experience, that's, that's the case as well when I spend time outside during the day. So I definitely would recommend people try and get more sunlight in their day if, if they feel like their sleep can be improved. So Amy, you mentioned uh, mood and a little bit of mental health as well. What effect does, you know, sleep and getting enough or not getting enough have on things like anxiety and, and depression, you know, kind of like maybe in the short term, but also in like the long term? Mm hmm. We we did uh, a study in it was it was over 
20,000 people. Um, in my previous role, I was working at Calgary Counseling Center. And so I was, I was part of the leading the research team and we were really interested in the relationship between sleep and mental health. And we did a survey in these people and we, we we're just looking at, um, a, um, a validated questionnaire when it came to depression. And so we had this validated questionnaire that we asked them as it related to depress- depressive symptoms. And then we asked them, how much sleep are you getting? Um, and so we did find kind of a U, a U-shaped relationship where those who had high levels of depression had lower amounts of sleep and also higher amounts of sleep. So, and these are associations and basically our sweet spot. So the lowest um, amount of depressive symptoms in relationship to sleep was about 7.5 hours. Um, and that was kind of that sweet spot for lowest amount of depressive symptoms, which, which aligns with what we see for recommendations of sleep, et cetera. Um, now that was just, uh, associations looking at these relationships, but further work has gone to show that poor sleep can lead to poor mental health, but also, uh, reverse that where, um, Poor mental, so poor sleep leads to poor mental health. Poor mental health can lead to poor sleep as well. So it's, it's a tricky kind of relationship. But if we look at those sleep deprivation studies that I was talking about, the number one impairment that we see it, or the number one complaint is problems with mood. So there is, there is something there. In that if we aren't getting enough sleep, if we're getting poor quality sleep, that we do see more mental health issues in those individuals. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting to figure out. It's like a chicken or the egg situation, but yeah, you can't really cook corners on sleep. So it's it's always best to try and focus on the controllable and get as much sleep as you can. So another post you had on your Instagram was around the aura ring. So, you know, I hear a lot about it, of like science-based, and it looks really cool. But, you know, how accurate is it? Is it more accurate than other wearables? And, like, would you recommend people wear it to track their sleep? Mm-hmm. I think in most situations, it's important to have some way of tracking your sleep. No, that doesn't have to be with a wearable device. It could be you wake up in the morning and you rate your sleep quality or, you know, on a piece of paper. Um, it doesn't have to be high tech, but I think I kind of go back to um, what's measured can be managed. So if we're not measuring something, it's going to be really difficult to manage it. Um, and so that's kind of the quote that I go back to. So I think wearables provide a lot of benefits. It helps us. It helps bring awareness to sleep and, you know, Aura Ring has definitely with their millions of users have definitely brought more awareness to sleep and the importance of sleep. Um, and I would say, uh, a lot of the, there are big differences between some trackers and other trackers, 
And I would say uh, Aura is definitely a good option when it comes to choosing a sleep tracker. Uh, Fitbit Alta is also another option. You know, Whoop is is right there as well. Um, Garmin is actually kind of on the poorer side at this point. So they're not as accurate as some of these other wearables. But uh, as I said, I think it, it's helpful in most situations. However, there can be what's called orthosomnia. So the obsession with getting a good night's sleep, looking at this data, having it impact you potentially in a negative way. If you see a score and you're like, oh, no, I'm going to have a horrible day today. Um, And so we have to be cognizant of the benefits of when these trackers do well, when do they not, what data do we trust from these trackers, what do we not. And and at least right now, um, we can trust the sleep duration that are coming from these trackers. Um, that data has been shown to be pretty accurate when it's compared to in the lab with EEG and all of these other sensors. So sleep duration is is pretty accurate when we're looking at most of these devices. Now, when it comes to sleep, well, I guess deep sleep is how they're defining this, REM sleep, light sleep. It, it does a poor job of kind of accurately capturing those instances. And so, for example, I think I have a post on my Instagram where I got eight and a half hours of sleep and it showed that I only had 4% deep sleep, and which is if I was in the lab. So I used to score all these sleep studies for different sleep stages. And if I was hooked up in the lab, I can guarantee that my deep sleep would be more than 4%. So um, we have to be kind of uh, aware of the weaknesses of these devices. And I know Aura Ring is getting better with their algorithm detection. Um, they probably have one of the best algorithm detections when it comes to parsing out deep sleep, light sleep, REM sleep. Although it's not like you're in a lab, you know, it's it's still a bit inaccurate. And my thought would be, just because I have let's say it shows I got 33% deep sleep. Um, Is that a good thing? Well, when you're sleep deprived and you have recovery sleep, you have more deep sleep. So it's, it's challenging to really understand, even if this data was accurate, um, is it really making like life changing um, insights into how I should um, change my habits to improve sleep quality. I think that's a bit of a missing link. It makes me think of if there's, you know, someone with just spare cash around to do a study comparing people with wearables versus without, and if the wearables actually help to improve people's sleep. So hopefully something like that comes out down the line to tell us. That is that is a good point. Um, are are these even? It's kind of like I kind of equate it with a bathroom scale. You know, it's not a, it's not a weight loss program. 
it's measuring how much you weigh, but it's not giving you insights on what to actually do to lose weight. I kind of equate wearables right now, sleep trackers at this point in a similar way. It's measuring, but is it really making a difference in your overall sleep quality? You know, who knows? Exactly. Yeah, we got to objectively analyze is it helping. And it's interesting you mentioned Garmin isn't particularly good compared to the other companies there because I have a Garmin watch and I was tracking my sleep a couple of months ago. And at a certain point, I had to add on or sorry, take away 30 minutes every night because the minute I got into bed, the watch thought I was asleep. And I'm like, no, I definitely didn't fall asleep at that time. And so, yeah, that it checks out in my experience. That's funny. I think that study where they were looking at Garmin showed on average like 52 more minutes of extra sleep that wasn't really there. So that also aligns with your experience. Well, it's a lot. It'd be nice to get an extra 52 if I could. So <laughs> another thing that uh, affects sleep in my experience is coffee. So, you know, what's your opinion on, on coffee? I think the last time we talked, you said you stopped drinking coffee. I also, I think I just hit 30 days, no coffee. I have a bit of caffeine and I definitely anecdotally feel like I'm sleeping better, but I haven't compared what the watch has said. So, you know, if you're working with somebody, what do you recommend around uh, coffee and their coffee consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, to drink it strategically is kind of my main piece of advice. Um, There's versus automatically. So um, there's been some research to show, actually, if you're looking at an athlete specifically, and you categorize athletes into slow metabolizers of caffeine versus fast metabolizers of caffeine, and you give them caffeine before a cycling time trial about an hour before, those who are actually slow metabolizers of caffeine perform 14% worse than when they didn't have coffee at all. So there is a lot of nuance to this recommendation that we should all automatically drink caffeine for every amazing, you know, competition that we have. Um, I think we should be a little bit more thoughtful as to does this really help me in my performance? Uh, There was a recent meta-analysis, so that was looking at 24 different studies on caffeine and sleep. And they found that uh, with caffeine consumption, it reduced total sleep time on average by 45 minutes. It um, decreased sleep efficiency by 7%. So uh, basically a measure of kind of sleep quality. And it increased the time it took them to fall asleep on average between nine minutes. They had 12 minutes more of wake during the night than when they weren't drinking coffee. Um, and interestingly, they found that they were looking at actually the type of caffeine that they were using, and they found that it sh- uh, coffee should be consumed at least nine hours before bedtime um, in their experience. So if you go to bed at 10 p.m., you want to finish your caffeine consumption by nine or sorry, uh, 1 p.m. And they actually looked at a pre-workout supplement, which some of your clients may be actively taking. And they found that that pre-workout 
standard serve a pre-workout supplement, so around 220 milligrams of caffeine, should be consumed at least 13 hours prior to bedtime. So that's more like a 9 a.m. Um, scenario there uh, in this particular study. So caffeine, it can, as I, as this study has shown, and as we all have probably experienced, uh, can have a negative impact on our sleep. And there are people out there who think, yeah, it doesn't affect me. I can have an espresso at 10 p.m. and I'll be fine. But it's probably likely impacting the quality of your sleep. You just may not be aware of it. That is fascinating. 45 minutes a night. That's huge. So if you, I think if we told people, sure, you might be more alert if you drink coffee, but you'll lose 45 minutes of sleep. People would, would say that's a terrible deal. And it's just one night as well. That's that's wild. So I'll have to link that that study in the show notes. Yes. Now, um, it's likely not as bad as what I'm um, telling you here, because it was likely that these people had, were off of caffeine and then had caffeine. And so it probably exacerbated these results. Whereas if you normally drink one cup, you know, at 8 a.m., um, uh, having an additional cup, you know, or, uh, where this really makes a difference is if you're on coffee, you've had it for a while, you go off coffee for a while, then you try it back up again, you know, it's probably going to have more of a negative impact versus someone who's just kind of continually consuming one to two before a certain time of day. So, um, don't want to mislead people there, but uh, definitely something to keep in mind and how it how it impacts you specifically. Of course. And like you said, the timing as well is very important. So if someone could have the one cup earlier in the day and they might actually not lose any sleep. So the 45 minutes, definitely an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amy, that's all the time we have, but it, it's great to, to chat to you. Is there any the final message you want to leave people with or links you want to tell people about? Well, I'd love to, for those people who are really struggling with your sleep, um, definitely try and reach out and get help from a sleep professional. I think it could really make a difference. And even if you're struggling for 10, 20 years, like you can still kind of turn that around and um, definitely don't hesitate to reach out and um, get help from a sleep professional if you are really struggling with your sleep. Uh, as far as ways to reach me, you can catch me on Instagram and Twitter at Sleep for Sport and then also my website, SleepInToWin.com. Brilliant. I'll attach all that in the show notes. Thanks very much, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's been great. <laughs>